This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, December 27th, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. Cato's letters were incredibly influential in the 18th century, and many of the ideas presented there were front and center in the American founding. Paul Meany directs Libertarianism.org. We discussed what Cato's letters communicated to readers and the impact that those letters had on the creation of the United States. This is part two of our conversation. Before we get started on sort of the the beat, the bulk of Cato's letters, let's recap a little bit about what we talked about before, which was the environment in which uh, these books, these pamphlets were created. So I really love the 18th century because I feel it's a it's an odd midpoint in history where people are starting to talk about science and enlightenment ideas, but they're still wearing powdered wigs and there's still lords and ladies and lots of decorum. So it's kind of a, a very new period and there's a lot of new things happening. And what we start to refer to as capitalism is starting to emerge. Um, all sorts of local hierarchies and elites are being broken up and there's all sorts of new jobs rising up, like stock jobbers, what we would consider people who trade socks today. This is like a new fearful invention. So much is changing in England that it's a time of great flux. And um, what Cato's Letters is really trying to do is to say, amidst all this chaos, there's actually a few simple principles that we can follow that we can figure out from history and from reason that we should nearly always follow and that'll produce a free and prosperous society for all. All right. So we're at a time when science and religion are sort of butting heads in a in a re, in really significant ways in terms of the scientific revolutions that we're seeing and people's ideas about how the, the world practically functions. Um, how did that inform what these guys wrote? So uh Trenchard and Gordon were very anti-Catholic. They constantly refer to people as papes and papists. They're very critical of the Catholic Church in general. But they're very critical of what they refer to as superstitious religions, religions that require ritual and particular kinds of ceremony that might not make complete sense. But they're generally afraid of a society that shuns reason. And what they see all over Europe is a widespread ignorance in their view. People who are obsessed with magic and curses and myths, all sorts that don't make any real sense. Uh, but they say that this kind of inclination in human nature towards the fantastical is because what we don't understand and what we revere, we attribute to great and divine causes. Um, but there's lots of things on a regular basis that we misinterpret just because our senses deceive us. And that's what Cato's trying to say. So if you look at, like, if I stick a pencil in the water, the way physics works, the pen, the pencil will look a little different than it actually is. That's kind of the example they give that our everyday senses constantly deceive us. So in that regard, it's not inconceivable that our ideas about politics are also kind of similar. They're kind of muddled and we don't fully understand what's going on. And our political senses deceive us, too. And so it, it, when they talk about political theorists, uh, there's a real sort of just real politic way that they attack the problems of, you know, at their time, modern society, which is there are people in ivory towers who are talking about how the world ought to be. And then there's reality mm -hmm. and that the, the political theorists uh, are utterly destroyed by reality on an ongoing basis. Yeah, they have a, they're not as critical as people like Bastiat would later be in the liberal tradition. Um, but what they do talk about is kind of the way leaders and political thinkers, the way they use human nature in such a malleable way, and they use words in such a malleable way, they might 
like monarchists might talk about liberty, but they mean the liberty to serve the monarch. And they're saying these are all sorts of words that keep getting twisted around and used in all sorts of different ways. So people are kind of tongue-tied before they can even say anything. So when you ask, like, what's my duty towards a king, which is a common question of the day, that word duty, that can do a lot of work. And same with the idea of the common good too. So saying all these words constantly get wrapped up in our heads. We don't know what we're talking about really, but Cato is always going to go back to these simple principles. And they're saying the story isn't that complicated really. And their story of how political society is set up is kind of the same as John Locke. There's a state of nature we're born into where all people are equal. No one has authority over the other. But because the state of nature is kind of a clunky way to live life and it's not very convenient, we come together and we set up a political society. And this society is set up by consent of people, consent of the governed. And it's what they say, it's, it's an importantly, it's a human-made institution. It's an artificial creation by human design. It's not given by God. It's not like what Aristotle says, that man's a political animal. Like man isn't born with the government. We're born with nothing. We create all of these things. And because they're creations of our own, we can define what they mean. And we have to use words properly in that way. It's not like the word liberty or duty. They just kind of spring up in the wild and start running off crazy. They're saying, no, we need to bring these words back to their original meaning before we had all this monarchist jargon slapped on top of it. All right. And so that, that monarchist jargon uh, among other things, allows for quite a bit of mischief from self-anointed uh, political leaders. That was a very catonic sentence right there, mischief and self-appointed leaders. But yeah, I, I like it. But the way, the way they talk about it is, well, the reality is there's a few men who've just decided arbitrarily that they're on top. There's Sometimes there's good reason for it, like virtue or merit, but oftentimes it's kind of down to circumstances, and these people don't really have any right to lord over you like that. Or at least the only reason people have the right to rule over you is that they're doing the best they possibly can for you if they're promoting the common good. And this is where it gets dicey. Because um, normally people mention the common good. You know, Nowadays, we've got um, Catholic integralists with their common good constitutionalism, where the common good can mean things from banning pornography to not working on Sundays. It's kind of hard to know what my version of the common good is, what your version of the common good is. And Getting married, having yeah, children, yeah. Buy, buying a home, having a mortgage. Yeah, it really depends what you're into, right? Like, I, that's not my version of the common good personally. That's your particular good. But this is what Cato talks about, I think is an underrated part of the liberal tradition, is that they constantly evoke the common good. And normally libertarians are really skeptical of this kind of language. But what they're saying is, is that the common good is the protection of all people's rights that the reason governments are founded is to protect people's rights and to get rid of the inconveniences of state of nature. The limit on government power is once you go over and you start to use the state not to promote the common good, but to promote the particular good of particular people. And so what they're saying is, no, actually, the common good is all of us having these baseline of rights and freedom of speech, regardless of our economic uh, conditions in certain regards, because what Cato says is that, first off, liberty produces intelligence because we can debate about all sorts of things of freedom of speech. If nothing's off the table, we can talk about absolutely everything. But liberty also produces prosperity because we can deal with whoever we want because we can, we can benefit from mutual exchange. So liberty has all these sorts of effects that it has upon us. It also makes us more virtuous, they say, because our decisions are our own. We hold our heads a little bit higher. We hold our shoulders higher. We're proper people with dignity. And so they think that liberty does a lot of the work for human society. So they think that the common good of society is actually the common liberty of all. I think that's a really powerful idea that's kind of lost in modern day libertarianism. 
And all of these things you're you're making reference to, I'm hearing echoes of Bastiat, I'm hearing echoes of the Declaration of Independence, the idea that governments are instituted among men for specific purposes. Um, But it's this this notion of the common good um, being, you know, using their attempt at clarity of words to understand what that would mean. And, And how influential was that view? Uh, well, Cato's letters, we talked a little bit before, Cato's letters were hugely influential in the colonies. Uh, of all the books in the 1720s, Cato's letters were the most popular in libraries in revolutionary America. They were constantly cited by different people, such as Benjamin Franklin, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson. Um, they had a massive influence, but the reason they had an influence is because first off, they were great political thinking, but also it was kind of more subversive reason because if you wanted to criticize the English government, well, you couldn't just go out and write something about how they were the worst. So what you would do instead is you'd reprint some of Cato's letters that was criticizing the English government a long time ago, but hey, the criticism still holds up today. And so it was kind of this weird, slightly patriotic, our heritage as Englishmen, but also kind of a bit of a middle finger to the Brits at the same time. But I think that Cato's letters became so popular because they are about these simple ideas and they really hammer home a few simple principles over and over again. Governments are human creations. All men are born equal. Um, that the common liberty of all is the common prosperity of all. Some simple ideas that have really, really radical implications and a whole generation of people brought up on these ideas, we saw the outcome. The phrase, uh, freedom of speech as the bulwark of liberty, uh, before we started recording, you tell me that this is where that phrase comes yes. from. Cato's letters, as they say, freedom of speech is the bulwark of liberty. Um, And I think they're right in that. They think that without the right to criticize your leaders, there isn't really much you can do. They say that when when men's tongues aren't their own, there's very little else they can hold on to. That, you know, if you stay quiet, maybe you'll be able to hold on to your property and maybe you'll be able to hold on to your, you know, personal holdings. They say that isn't true. Um, To be in a proper free society, you need to be able to criticize people because they're saying sunlight is the best disinfectant, but also... um, if these political leaders are going to be trusted with so much power, why are they so afraid of being watched? Why are they so afraid of being observed? Cato is a big uh, advocate of government being out in the open, but also government being done by multiple people. Uh, Trenchard and Gordon always wanted the government to have more offices, to have more elections, to have rotation of offices and a rotation of people that was constantly flowing. So you could never get these incumbents. They always wanted new people in and they always wanted the general public to express their displeasure. And they wanted people to be hounded out of office and harassed and harangued if they did something wrong. They thought that the public was a great kind of watchdog for the state. In in the colonies, uh, you said that these books were hugely influential, but by the time uh, 1776, 1789 come and go, these books don't seem to have nearly as much resonance as uh, they might have. And certainly Cato's letters, broadly speaking, are largely forgotten in that sort of pinnacle moment of en- enlightenment thinking in the colonies. Um, I think there's a case to say something like that, but I would like to give Cato's letters a bit more credit. I think what the Americans... What, what I'm saying is in our modern understanding of a, a lot of the work that goes back, you know, hundreds of years of setting the stage for the American Revolution, Cato's letters, at least historically, from our modern vantage point, don't uh, figure very prominently. Oh, well, I think the reasoning behind that is because um, 
a good few historians, I think, got a little bit confused about what Kiddo's Letters was actually talking about. Um, very famous historian, uh, GJA Pocock, he thought that Cato's letters were fundamentally anti-capitalist. They were part of a classical Republican tradition that was about the common good, not the way Cato defined it as common liberty, but kind of this do what is best for the general public, let the state get involved. And so Pocock kind of makes this argument that Cato's letters transmits this um, Italian Atlantic tradition of thinking about republics over to America. I think what's closer to reality is that Cato's letters are much more complicated than Pocock makes them out to be, and also in a lot of ways much more radical. Uh, he kind of makes them like a generic classical Republican kind of thinker, but the reality is that Cato's letters were extremely controversial and extremely popular in their day. A lot of people loved them and a lot of people hated them. Some of their writings were even burned for being considered too controversial. So the way Pocock describes them as kind of like a generic classical Republican, I don't think that really flies too well. Um, but I also think that the founders moved beyond the lessons of Cato's letters in many ways. Cato's letters was all about resisting tyranny, um, liberty of conscience, freedom of speech, and America secured a lot of those things. The next step was to move on to arranging a smart constitution. I don't think Cato's letters played as large a role in that part of American history. However, I think a lot of the lessons from Cato's letters were implemented. A lot of the ideas about letting ambition counteract ambition in the Federalist Papers, that it reads like it's straight out of Cato's letters. And an awful lot of the Federalist Papers kind of mirrors Cato's very um, pessimistic view of human nature. That humans, they're not really cut out for this politics stuff, but if they have to get involved in it, we'll put the training wheels on them, and that's kind of the Constitution. Um, but I don't think that Cato's letters ever completely evaporated. I think that historians started to ignore them more and more. But when you go back to the pamphlets of the day, you can see them constantly referenced, all the way down to people like Abigail Adams citing them. Paul Meany directs Libertarianism.org. We spoke earlier this month. This is part two of our conversation. It's that time when I ask you, yes, you, to show your support for this podcast and the broad mission of the Cato Institute with a gift. Visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor to get started. And thank you.